We spent four weeks talking about spiritual warfare into these segments. Our first week, really to raise the awareness in our own group that there is an invisible realm around us and that there was a battle going on. For most Christians, that's news. They've heard about it. Most of us don't really believe much in it. If we do, we give it lip service. And we spent a week just trying to delve into the fact that there is a war. We are called to be part of it. And that second part trips most Christians up because they think that this is a war that if they've heard about it from anybody is called to be fought between angels and demons and we're kind of the subjects. They're somehow they're fighting over. And that's probably not the correct view entirely because Christians are called to be part of the battle. And we learned during that first week that the battle was over the knowledge of Christ for us to even know. All right? In the second week, we really started getting deep into understanding who our adversary was, appreciating who our adversary was, starting to understand the deeper questions like, how can Satan's existence glorify God? We know that all things glorify God, and yet we ask difficult questions about, well, if all things glorify God, what about Satan? Was Satan planned? Did God know? Why doesn't he cut him off? What's going on? Why does he delay the judgment? And starting to appreciate the limitations that Satan has, what Satan's perspective is, what his strategy is, and we learn key things there that for non-Christians, he's trying to distract us and keep us from knowing Christ in any way. For Christians, he's trying to neutralize our effectiveness so that more people won't come. This is a race for Satan. He knows the end is coming. God in his wisdom allows him to continue for the time being. So he's trying to take down as many people as he can. And we spent a couple of weeks putting ourselves in his camp for a moment to try to figure out what is his strategy. If we're going to sneak in and figure out our adversary's strategy, how would we know what it is? That was week two. Week three, we began to look at the scriptures about putting on the full armor of God. Defensive measures that we put on, like knowing what the truth is so we're not deluded and end up in the wrong camp, wrong religion, you know, a twist on what Christianity really needs to be. We look at the breastplate of righteousness and understanding what, how we stand firm with the gospel of peace. We spent a whole week on those. If you want to pick those up on the CD, you can to understand what they are. But the point is, those things help us to stand firm so that when we're attacked, we're not easily moved. In the last week, we began looking at more offensive measures. Now, I know that when we talked about these, somebody said, well, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation... Those kind of sound like more defensive things, and they are. They're more defensive. We talked about how our faith protects us and how salvation ultimately is our real protection because no matter what, Satan is not going to take away our salvation. So even if we die in this battle, we're okay. And then we started talking about the Word of God being the offensive sword of the Spirit. And we stopped there. There is one more in the next verse. It was coming. But it almost deserves separate mention. And it's the reason we kind of took a pause and looked at it. And I look at it at the bottom of the screen, you'll see it says, tonight we're going to talk about our least used weapon. The reason it deserves separate mention is because this is the area we're not, we're not doing so good on. This is the area we're actually not even using the weapon. This is a weapon that we have available to us that we've left back in the camp. We didn't bring it. I want you to picture the Roman soldier that Paul describes decked out in all these things. 
He's got a belt, he's got the breastplate, he's got this cleat-like sandals that he's going to walk on the battlefield with. He's got a shield, a helmet, and a sword, and he marches off into battle. And that's where most Christians are, if they've even managed to pick those things up. But the one weapon that we always forget about is prayer. Let's go to the next slide, and we'll take a look at how these things stack up. This is from Ephesians 6, 13 through 15. The commandment is for us to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. There's that concept of being able to stand against evil. The cleat-like sandals were meant to hold your ground so even when they rushed at each other, you wouldn't slide backwards in the terrain. You would actually just stand there. And that's what knowing the gospel of peace is all about. And after you've done everything, to stand. To stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So there's the first part that we looked at in week number three. Let's go to the next slide. We'll look at the part from Scripture that gives us the weaponry that we have for offensive measures. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Paul adds, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The underlying part is the emphasis for tonight. As you guys know, in Greek, there really isn't any punctuation. So the person who made a period after the word, which is the word of God, and put a period, could have easily removed it and went right into, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit. You guys know that the Bible didn't even come with verses, that we added those many, many years later to kind of help us find different passages. So there's no delineation here. The fact that the verse begins with and means that it should be connected in thought and in purpose. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And that's the part we don't do. That's the part I hope we can be honest tonight and lay open our souls a little bit and talk about the fact that this is the weakest thing for Christians to do. Now, I may be making generalizations, and some of you here are like, I pray like five hours a day. Okay, it's not going to apply to you as much. <laughs> but I don't know if that's going to be very many of us in here. That's certainly not going to apply to me. And without this weapon, it means that we're leaving the most important weapon back in the camp. Tonight, I want to discuss a little bit and analyze a little bit on this focus of why is it that it's so hard for us to pray? Now, you guys know we did a whole series. I think it was six weeks long on the Lord's Prayer, analyzing prayer and why it's so hard for Christians to pray. So I, I, part of me feels like, am I repeating the same question that we spent six weeks trying to answer? Yeah, in part I am because we didn't answer it. 
We theorized about it. We studied the Lord's Prayer and ignited my heart for understanding the Lord's Prayer and why we're supposed to pray the way Jesus instructed. It didn't change me into a prayer warrior. And I recognize that this topic is kind of laden in Christianese a little bit. I've warned you each time we walk through these things like the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation that we have a tendency to just kind of like just tune out because we're not exactly the people that walk around checking each other's armor at church. I've joked about the person that walks up to you at church and says, hey, are you wearing the shield of faith today, brother? Like, we get kind of like, oh, you're that weird type. So when I start talking about prayer warriors, I know you're probably thinking about those people who've been gifted with the gift of prayer who just sit in the back and pray for people, and you're thinking, I'm probably not a prayer warrior. But notice that the verses that we have on the screen don't distinguish between who's supposed to be doing this. They're a command imperative for every single person. Ryan. Um, do you think it's, it's the amount of times you pray that matters, or is it the sincerity of the prayer that matters? Because um, you do not have, because when you pray, you ask amiss. So it's like you can pray, but if your heart's not into it, it kind of, it's, you know, it does it. I don't know if it's the number. Maybe it's the intensity. Maybe it's the sincerity. Maybe it's the attention. We're going to look at different factors of specific type of prayer. But, Hannah? Well, I mean, it says pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So I think it basically covers everything. If I read this, I'd be reading this as like, just do everything you possibly can in prayer. Let's take the analogy that Paul's using. You're on the battlefield, right? You're on the front lines. You're a foot soldier. And prayer, let's use prayer in a military context as the air support that's going to come in and help bomb the enemy. All right? So you're on the front line and you're fighting and you're taking heavy casualties and you're radioing back and saying, okay, send in the prayer. We really need it right now. Do you want the answer to come back saying, well, what type are you guys looking for? Or do you want the answer to be, we're coming in with everything we got. Here we are. And I think that's the type of imperative that he's using in this military analogy of saying, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. And I think that's kind of, to me, sounding like almost, I wouldn't call it a desperate, but an urgent command. Okay? Let's break that down, go to the next slide, and look at how some of these things work. Our least used weapon is prayer. There's the verse that I've underlined, part of that from Ephesians. So what type of prayer is Paul referring to? If you look at the verse, you can identify these things. He's talking about constant prayer. Okay? He's talking about pray always. Keep on praying. This isn't like an obligatory prayer, or this isn't like a one-strike type rule prayer. This is a, I'm asking you to always pray. Pray. Pray constantly. Now let's put it in context. The reason we're even talking about this topic is because we're talking about spiritual warfare. This isn't just the, hey, somebody in my life is going through a tough time, I need to pray for. Okay? This isn't the, my circumstances are great, so I should be praising. This is, guys, you have an enemy who is trying to take you down. When we looked at the devil's strategy a number of weeks ago, we identified that kind of three-prong approach. Distract everybody who doesn't know him easy enough, or get them worshiping the wrong thing or the wrong God or the wrong material possession or whatever it is. That's strategy one. 
Strategy two is come after the body itself for believers and take away your effectiveness. And strategy three is actually try to take some of you down. Just the way that Satan came to Jesus and said, I want to go after Peter. And what did Jesus respond? He said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. It's the verse. The prayer part is the most important that comes in, and we are ignoring it. So put it in that context. This is not just, hey, how should we pray as a body? We looked at that during our Lord's Prayer discussion. Yeah, that was interesting. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. And here's a priority list I'm going to give you in the Lord's Prayer. This is a little different context. This is, you have an enemy. He's trying to take you down. You need to constantly be praying against that enemy. Because prayer does work against our enemy. Okay? In the Bible, the Gospels, the disciples came to Jesus and said, there's a guy, and he's, he's possessed, and we can't seem to do anything about it. Does anybody remember what Jesus responded? He said, you have not prayed. And apparently, there's some demonic influences that only respond to prayer. But I don't think it would surprise a single person in here to say that prayer affects the spiritual realm. I think we all understand that. Even without looking at our spiritual warfare series, I think we kind of know that already. We kind of know that the prayer affects the spiritual realm somehow. So if it does, what's the deal? Why are we praying? Yeah, well, I think it is. It's kind of wrapped up in spiritual warfare in a way because you're saying that because we don't see spiritual warfare, we don't really feel like we should pray. If I could translate that, that would almost be saying because I don't think there's a battle going on or the battle's not around me, I don't feel like I need to participate. And that's actually one of the devil's best tactics to neutralize the body. Maybe he doesn't have to take everybody down by throwing in all these like tumultuous things in our lives. If he looks and he goes, hey, look at this group, for example. They meet every Sunday night. They're not praying. Their effectiveness is going to be, eh, leave them alone. You know, I'm not going to even shake them up. Just let them keep going on the belief that there's not even a battle to fight. They're just out there, you know, doing the uh, old, like, jousting against windmills, but they're not really in the fight. It's, uh, it's looked at more as a chore, like something we have to do as being Christians, something that we want to do. Like, it's saying, like, oh, we should pray. So it's like, okay, we should pray. It's kind of like, you know, you should clean your room. Okay, well, that's great, you know, like, yeah. I think prayer is work. I think anybody, there may be a few real Christians of genius <laughs> who just love prayer for the sake of prayer. I, and, and, and they're wired that way, and God bless those people. I think for the most of us, prayer is work. I think I could read the Bible easier than I could pray. I could probably, I could sing and worship all day long and be happy. Hannah?
it's a relationship, and that's really what prayer is all about. It's communicating to this guy that really wants a relationship with you and wants to communicate back to you. Yeah, I wonder how many of our lives allow for that kind of relationship just in terms of our own busyness. And even when that busyness is stuffed with doing things for God. Um, here's what we're looking at, a constant prayer. Some people use the doctrine of pray without ceasing. You know, a constant communication, an open dialogue that's always going on. It's an intensive prayer. Look at the urgency with which he's, you know, this is weaponized prayer. This is not like, hey, talk to me and let's go for a walk. This is a specific type of prayer when we're dealing with spiritual warfare. Intercessory prayer, where it's very intensive and it's others-focused, not us-focused. Now, even when we looked at the Lord's Prayer, we looked at that priority of our Father, starting with that focus. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Those are God-focused. And then moving into more of like localized focuses, like let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know, and then finally moving down to something like give us this day our daily bread and moving on. Okay, there's almost like a starting like this and eventually coming down to more me. In spiritual warfare, yes, you can pray for yourself, of course, to be armed, and yes, you can pray for yourself to be protected, but intercessory prayer is others focused too. It, you're really praying for everyone that's engaged in the battle, which in Christianity should be everyone too. They're being attacked whether they're engaged in the battle or not. It's also strategic, understanding the strategy that our adversary has and praying specifically against it. I pray that we not be taken down with our own sin. I pray that we not be taken down with our own distortions of truth. I pray that you not be effective, Satan, in trying to neutralize me. I pray that you not be effective in trying to discourage other people who are doing your will. Like, think of all the possible strategies that he's going to use and say, I'm going to take the time to pray against those things. Okay? Even as those words come out of my mouth, I'm thinking about the extremes that we talked about in our first week of being careful not to, like, run to the other side where all we're doing is casting out Satan out of every room we walk into. There's been so much abuse of this that some of us have tended to just ignore it entirely. I don't think Satan's happy about that. That, you know, we've had silly examples of people who are trying to cast out demons in every single situation, like a red light, you know? We get kind of fed up with that, so we go to the other extreme of just ignoring it. And Paul's saying, look at this, constant, intensive, other-focused and strategic because it's a weapon and there's a war going on and he wants us to be engaged in it and not sitting on the sidelines wondering if there's anything we can do or if there's even a war at all. But this war is won anyways. It's not like my prayer is going to change the result of this war. It's it is going to change the results because the war is over people knowing Christ and that hasn't been decided yet for so many people. Now, maybe God already knows the numbers. During the series, we used the example of like World War II, when, when Japan had surrendered. But there were many, many people on the islands who hadn't surrendered. They didn't even know the war was over. And the demons are still fighting the war, even though the war is technically over. The victory has been decided. Let's put it that way. The war is not over. The victory has already been decided. 
But Satan is still loose, and he's still able to take down more people. And that's his goal, is I'm going to take down even more people. We've already talked about the fact that in this century alone, there'll be more people alive than have ever been alive on the earth combined. And he's thinking, that's awesome. I will take down even more people now. And it's happening every day. Brian. Um, I think for myself, um, the hardest thing for prayer for me is knowing that it's going to be 100% effective. Because if I pray, and I, I think just because of, I always feel like, oh, the Lord's going to say, wait, no, like he's not going to say yes. And so like when I pray, it's like, I'm like, okay, well, I want to, like I pray for these things, but it's like I don't go into it knowing that he's going to say yes. You know what? Hold that thought for a second because I'm going to talk about our belief in effectiveness, but I will point you back to the fact that that's really what our shield of faith is really about because the, the arrows that, that, that Satan is sending at us, that the shield of faith supposedly stops, he's sending those arrows of doubt and deception at us saying, who are you to pray? Like, who's going to listen to you? Like, what difference is it going to make? God's, God's going to do what God's going to do. You're not even part of the deal. He's already planned it from the beginning. What's your deal? Those kinds of slight distortions, slight deceptions, are the things that hurt us and neutralize us in battle. That's why the shield of faith of saying, you know what? I believe in a God who gives us his word. I believe in a God who gave us a covenant. I believe in a God who is always true to his word and who promises me that when I pray, it will make a difference and that I will be heard and it will, be, it will matter. And that's why that shield of faith becomes important because the arrows that you're hearing thrown at you, and all of us have it, is I see a ceiling above my head. I don't even know if there's anybody up there listening. You know, or it doesn't matter. Why would you listen to me? I'm a sinner anyways. Or I'm so bad, he doesn't, I don't deserve to have my prayers heard. Or my prayers are ineffective. Or I don't think he's going to answer them. And that's exactly why that just believing in that faith of saying, no, I take you at your word. I have faith in you. I believe in you. I just have to trust you is what stops that kind of doubt, deception, distortion from coming in. I want to ask this question. Do we believe in this kind of prayer? I'm going to read you this account that, that I've been looking at. Um, one of the books we've been using to track this series is Chip Ingram's book, The Invisible War. He recites this account in his book, um, and I'd just like to read it and get your sense on what you think of this. It says, There was a missionary serving as a medic in Africa. Periodically, he would travel by bicycle through the jungle to a nearby city for supplies. It was a two-day trip, so he would camp in the jungle overnight. He had always made the trip without incident. But one day, when he arrived in the city, he saw two men fighting. One was seriously hurt, so he treated the man, shared Christ with him, and he went on his way. The next time the missionary traveled to the city, the man he had treated approached him. I know you carry money and medicine, the man said to him. Some friends and I followed you into the jungle that night after you treated me, knowing that you'd have to sleep in the jungle by yourself. We waited for you to go to sleep, planning to kill you and to take your money and drugs. So imagine, even after the guy treated him, they thought, well, this guy has money. Let's go after him and kill him and take his money. As we started to move into your campsite, we saw 26 armed guards surrounding you. There were only six of us, so we knew we couldn't possibly get near you, and we left. 
When the missionary heard this, he laughed. That's impossible, I assure you. I was alone at the campsite. But the man pressed the point. No, sir, I was not the only one who saw the guards. My friends saw them too, and we all counted them. I kind of heard that story as I was reading this, thinking, you know, we've heard stories like that before, about people seeing angelic beings guarding people and doing things. Does this have to do with prayer? You know, what was they going to tell me that the missionary was praying that night? I mean, it sounds like the missionary was surprised. So I turned the page. <laughs> Several months later, the missionary attended his home church in Michigan and told of his experience. The man in the congregation interrupted his presentation by jumping to his feet and saying that there was something that he had to say to everybody. It stunned the church. With a firm voice, he said, we were there with you in spirit. The missionary looked perplexed. The man continued, on the night that you were in Africa, it was morning here. I stopped by the church to get some materials for a ministry trip. But I, as I was putting my bags in the trunk, I felt the Lord leading me to pray for you. It was an extremely strong urge. So I got on the phone and I gathered some other men to come to the church and pray for you also. The man then turned to the rest of the congregation. Will all those men who prayed with me that day please stand up right now? And one by one they stood up, all 26 of them. Do we believe in this kind of prayer? Do we believe in a God who is so beyond our experience supernaturally, who guarantees us that prayer has power that we can't grasp in an earthly context? That some guy clear around the world is going to see 26 armed guards standing around representing 26 praying men? I mean, there's a couple observations I have about this story right off the bat. I'd like to know what church in America, apparently there's one in Michigan, that a guy could stop by church and call some of his friends to pray for a missionary and 26 of them would show up. I don't even think we could find 26 people at this church to show up for a free lunch, you know? I mean, 26 people to show up because somebody said, I have an urge to pray for this missionary? That tells me that this church must be a praying church. That this church must really have an understanding and appreciation of its obligation to pray. That when someone says, I felt the Spirit this morning telling me to pray for this guy, that all these people would just leave whatever they're doing and show up and pray. That's pretty amazing. But that's a human response. Maybe it has to do with faith too, but the other point of it is, do we as people believe that God can do this? that God is really going to protect a missionary this way? Because maybe it's our lack of ability to believe that that prevents us from doing this. If he so desires us to communicate to him, why, why are we so doubtful and fearful of him wanting to communicate with us and respond to us? Because the truth is, he does. And unfortunately, we make ourselves too busy, we get more comfortable when we live in yeah, 500 books on prayer is what I think the average bookstore might have when I go in there to look at a Christian bookstore. There are so many books on how to pray. 
you would think this is like the easiest part. You know, this is not like, here's a book on how to walk on water. You know, gaining enough faith to walk on water. Okay? Like, walking on water in three simple steps. You know? This is a book on how to speak to God. I said during our prayer series, there's no book on how to go out with your friends on Friday night. They don't have that book. Going to the movies with your friends for dummies. Step one, get to know some friends. I mean, there are hundreds of books written by all sorts of big-name, brand-name Christians. seems like everybody wants to write one on prayer. And all of them start off the same way. Christians don't pray enough. So here's, I'm a, by the time you finish reading my book and paying me $39.99, you'll, you'll also feel guilty and not pray. <laughs> I don't know what the deal is. But the fact that there's so many books is an anomaly to me. Because it's supposed to be a conversation with our best friend. Isn't that what we said in Sunday school when we were in like elementary school? Jesus is my best friend and I want to talk to him. So why aren't we talking to him? Why is it that hard? I, I ask myself the question, I don't know because I'm so busy with everything else in my life. I even speculated it's because I'm so busy doing things for him that I don't have time to ask him if he wants me to do them. And that's one of the things we're doing in this intercessory prayer concept here. Paul is giving us a very important message. Hey, this battle is going on. You better defend yourself, and you better wield your weapons, and you need to pray. There's no like optional part of it. Because this stuff goes on. And I don't know, the missionary didn't even know that it was going on. It was because people in his church were obligated out of a sense of like, hey, Paul told us we have to pray. We're showing up to pray. And in faith, they did it. Go to the next slide. Let me, let me continue this for a second. Yesterday, I want to tell you that a couple of us got together, probably six or seven of us, got together to kind of plot the direction of this group. And we got a lot of exciting things coming up as we try to really push what we're doing here into other places. One of the things that we did as an exercise was I asked the group collectively that was there doing the planning, how important do you think prayer is to our group? Like we set what our goal, what our target market is. Who's the type of person who most be interested in our group? And how important are all these things like prayer, activities, and retreats, you know, worship, all the different things that you could put in there. Of course, when you get to prayer, everybody's be like, 10. You know, because nobody's going to say, eh, I think prayer's like a five. All right? There's some things that you're going to get no matter what. Like any church, you go, who loves Jesus? Like, everybody raise their hand, you know? How important is prayer? 10. We asked people in the group to assess how we were doing on prayer, and here's how we rate as a group. It's a four. This is how we as a group, this group right here, our effectiveness in prayer is like a four. Now, we didn't ask everybody in the room how are they personally, because I have a feeling it might be even lower. <laughs> At least when we get together and have a meal, we feel obligated to pray because you can't really eat until you pray unless it's super salad. That's acceptable. Exceptions <laughs> to the Christian grace rule. Super salad is okay. Right. Chips and salsa is okay. Right. But when the main meal comes, you got to pray. Okay? There are the pre-meal exceptions to grace. How would you rate? I think that most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, most, not all, but I'd be the first to admit I'm probably a two. And I'm expecting to do great things for the kingdom and to advance the level of knowledge in God's people, 
when I'm praying at a two. We're so busy doing God's thing sometimes that we don't even include God in the plans. So, does that affect our group? I think it does. Go to the next slide. Let's take a look at one more thing. Here's uh, this guy named S.D. Gordon. I love Christians that have two initials, you know. H, what's it called? Like J.P. Moreland, J.I. Packer. Here's S.D. Gordon. Yeah, there's just like, yeah. I don't know where that thing came from, but it's probably the same people who invented the soup and salad exception to grace. Okay? If, you have two, if you have two initials, you'll look good at the bottom of a book. The great people of the earth today are the people who pray. Simple enough. The great people of the earth today are the people who pray. I do not mean people who talk about prayer. That would be me <laughs> and everybody in here. Nor those who say they believe in prayer. Nor yet those who can explain about prayer. But I mean those people who take time and pray. They have not time. It must be taken from something else. This something else is important. Very important and pressing, but still less important and less pressing than prayer. I like the acknowledgement that they don't have time because my excuse a lot of times is I don't have time. I've tried in the last couple weeks to schedule prayer. It's not the ideal you know, again, I don't schedule Friday night movies with friends or Friday night dinners or whatever. I don't, well, I mean, I call them up. Hey, what are you guys doing? You know, but I don't actually say like this week, no matter what happens, I'm going to go out to eat with my friends. I don't do that. It's just so natural. I want to do it. Even when they call up at the last minute, hey, what are you doing right now? You want to go? You're like, okay, sure. <laughs> but I've tried to at least schedule prayer and say, all right, if we have this event on Saturday, I'm going to start praying for it by Friday at the latest I've missed it a couple times, but at least I'm trying. Maybe that's where you got to start. Maybe we're so bad at it if you're down at the two level like me that you've got to actually just start to schedule some prayer before it becomes a more natural thing. They don't have time. It must be taken from something else. That's the scheduling concept. Like you got to figure, hey, I got so many things to do. It's easy for prayer to get lost. Because no one's going to call me up and go, hey, uh, you, you, you lost 10 points on your assignment because you didn't pray. You know? Or nobody, no client is going to call me on the phone and say, hey, I'm firing you because you're not praying. But those people, it seems in my mind, will do all those things if I don't get their work done or if I don't finish the assignment or whatever it is. You know, if I'm late for a meeting, you know, then I've got to explain why I'm late. But at prayer, it's like, yeah, God's always there. He's on 24-7. You know, I'll get to him later. So there's spiritual sleep. <laughs> so instead of that, like that, that one commercial with the like what that butterfly flying around, like for Ambien or whatever it is, like there's actually a, a spiritual sleep like that where he's like, "I appreciate that you want to talk to me right now, but nothing you have is even worth it. So why don't you just go to sleep? You could use you could, you could use some sleep right now, and I've heard it all before. You're just going to give me the same old thing, so." God's like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, hang on, I got the 26 men over here praying. You're just going to give me the same old, like, God, why, why? You know, like, 
They have not time and must be taken from something else. This something else is important. Notice that. It's important. It's not that, that something else is a waste of time all the time. And this is where we really have to like do a little bit of a gut check. This is where sometimes we are doing the Lord's work and where the Lord's work is getting in the way of our prayer. It's said that when they used to ask Martin Luther, like, you are so busy with so many things that you're trying to do. How is it that you find time to pray? And his response was, I'm too busy not to pray. That putting that priority on prayer is the only thing that gets me through everything. That I have to spend time in prayer just to be able to do the things that God puts in front of me. We're not like that. I'm not like that. God's got so many things that I'm supposed to do. Well, at least I think he's asked me to do them. I'm not even asking him. They're all less important and less pressing than prayer. Go to the next slide. We talked about this when we talked about our part on spiritual warfare. When is it that we're going to be attacked? Now think about it in the context of prayer. Times of spiritual growth. It's a great time to neutralize you and take you down, keep you from growing. When we're invading the enemy's territory like this missionary was, taking medicine and the gospel into enemy grounds, people who don't know the gospel, that's a great time for Satan to attack. When we're exposing the enemy, like in this series, when we're trying to show what his strategies are, he's prone to attack. And I've been actually very vigilant, watching, waiting, because I'm thinking, you know, somebody in this group, maybe me, whatever, could be subject to that attack, because we're spending so much time exposing him for who he is. I don't want to sound prideful, but in a group like this, we should be vigilantly because the types of stuff and the things that we talk about reach deep into enemy territory. We're trying to free people up of even improper beliefs in Christianity. For some reason, like, I feel like in the spiritual realm of things, how it's a spiritual battle, when we pray, um, then we give God almost that power to, to do things, to work. Because if our prayer is effective, then I think that then he's like, okay, cool. Now all of a sudden, you know, you're giving me something to work with in your life. You're giving me something, some substance, and you're trusting in me, or you're reaching out. And I think like if you if you reach out to God, that's still some sort of faith. You know, whether it's a little faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that that allows him to go, okay, cool. Now I can I can do something with that because you know we're reaching out. Well, look at it from God's perspective. God gave us the victory on the cross by Jesus, right? right? But he left in our hands the job of taking the message to everyone else. I've often thought that was a dumb idea. If I were God, I would not leave it in our hands. If he loves people so much, why is he leaving it to us to take the word out there? Because we're selfish, stupid people who would rather just protect ourselves. That's what our part becomes in the spiritual battle. Not just the spreading of the word, but of actually praying against the demonic influences that are trying to neutralize us. If this really is a battle for souls and the devil's doing enough of his job to try to take people down and neutralize them and keep us in a neutralized place, he's doing a pretty good job. And when we pray against Satan, we first have to know what his strategies are. If we pray against them, the Bible says he will flee. 
meaning that we freed up a chance to actually take the word to that person. Now, I have to be very careful there because the Bible also says that that person is not going to come to a saving grace because we tell them. The Holy Spirit still has to act and change their heart. So there's part of the responsibility is on us to do that, knowing that it's not us who convinces them, it's the Holy Spirit, but we still have the obligation to go and share. And when we're subject to spiritual attack, we're neutralized. We're not going. We're feeling bummed out about ourselves. We're feeling guilty. We're feeling messed up. We're feeling like it doesn't do any good. That's really the place where he takes down most Christians. Or that there's not even a reason to go. I'm not the right person. All those kind of things. Praying against that gives us the power to say, I don't believe those lies. I don't believe those distortions. I believe it is my responsibility. I believe in God's promises. I believe that if I go, good things will happen, even though it's not in my control. But I believe i got to do it. And again, remember that even the analogy that Paul gives about the soldier going into battle, it's not a general, it's not an officer, it's a soldier who's just dutifully marching into battle because someone told him he got to do it. That's what he does. He puts on his armor, he takes his weapons, and he goes into battle. Somewhere in the background, the officers are doing all the strategy and working things out. And maybe that's God's role, the Holy Spirit's role, prayer's role, I don't know. But our job is still to obey and to do it. And to say, yeah, there is a war and I'm going to be part of it. It's totally changed my perspective on it because this is not usually the area that I'm comfortable dealing with. But that's just the way it is. The reason that I ask you guys if you believe in the type of prayer that this story was illustrating is because I just know that in my own personal walk, the times when I've prayed the most are the times when I believe that my prayers had those kind of powers. You know, we actually believed it in our heart that we could influence things move mountains, walk on water with our simple prayers, our prayers become much more desirable for ourselves. We just want to influence the world that way. And so part of it is asking, why don't we believe in that kind of prayer? I mean, if I said to you, hey, listen, you could pray in anything you wanted. I mean, who wouldn't want that power? Who of us would be like, ah, too lazy, you know? I mean, the equivalent in our American pop culture would be like, here's a genie with three wishes, and you go, I don't know, I'm too bad. I can't think of three wishes. It's too hard. You know, like, just get back in the bottle. Yeah? Well, I think the reason why people, at least personally, can say, you know, like, well, why aren't we excited about, hey, pray, whatever you want, you know, will happen, is primarily because that's not what people experience. And it's like, well, I pray, and either because I'm not praying correctly, and I'm not saying like, there's one way to pray or anything, like that I'm not praying with the right heart, I'm not praying for God's will, I'm not doing those things, or even just, it's not, it doesn't come out that, hey, you just pray for things you want and those things happen. And so after you see that that doesn't happen, and because you see a lack of response, I think a lot of times, because it is talking to God and not another person. So you can pray and not necessarily get a response that you're used to seeing or able to interpret. So it's very easy to just say, okay, well, it's not having that effect. So it's not a genie with three wishes. It's just... That's a, that's a great comment because I think that is at the heart of what most Christians are scratching at, which is we believe that God is a God of his word. And he does tell us that we can get anything we want if we pray for it. But it doesn't seem to work out that way. I think part of it does have to do with what he means by asking these things will be given to you because I think that if you look at the language very carefully, 
He's telling you almost what to ask for, and you'll get those things. But then there's the passage where he says that if you had the faith of this mustard seed, you would tell this mountain to move, and it would move. And I take God pretty literally when he says that. The problem is none of us have ever moved a mountain, and you think, like, how much faith does that take? But I'm saying that if you had the power to pray and watch those things happen, if you were Moses and could strike the rock and watch water come out of it or part the Red Sea, if you were Peter and could get out of the boat and follow Jesus and walk for a few steps, you know, if you were John and Peter healing a blind man, if you had that ability in your prayer, if you were Jesus and could raise Lazarus from the dead, whatever you want to use as an example, you know, or ascend to heaven in a chariot of fire, like if you had that prayer, I just can't help but imagine that we wouldn't be praying a lot more. Look at the 26 men. Those guys must have believed that their prayer was going to make a difference or they would not have rolled out of bed and shown up. I don't know that they knew how it would change it, but they had a belief that if they showed up, something very significant was going to happen. And then the way I could tell that is because you don't get 26 Christians to do anything. We're talking about doing God's will. We're talking about having faith to do things. We're talking about the fact that sometimes we want to make sure we're on God's program. Like sometimes that we might not be, we maybe we don't have faith that we're on God's program. God agrees. Jesus says, you got to be on my program. Look at this verse from John. He's talking about abiding in him. John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me. Other translations say abide in me. And I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Let me stop there for a second. The analogy here is very clear. You take the branches off the vine, they die. They don't bear fruit. They don't even live. But look at this. It says that no branch can bear fruit by itself. Are we trying to bear fruit without God? Are we trying to bear fruit without actually directly connecting to the vine itself? Prayer is that connection. Okay? Now, there's a lot of other things that are part of that connection, but prayer is definitely, without prayer, we're not even communicating. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. You know, if you really looked at this critically for a second, you could say, I could bear fruit without you. What kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about good deeds? Well, I know a lot of people that could do good deeds without God. I know a lot of people in the world that are doing good deeds on their own. They might be like, I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're saving humans. Maybe they're like curing the AIDS crisis or something, and they're not in any way doing God's agenda. They're just doing a humanitarian work. So it can't be that the fruit that Jesus is talking about is just good deeds. In Matthew, he said, he, they said, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these miracles in your name? He's like, I don't know you. Who's he talking about? He's talking about people who did not remain in him. They might have done good deeds. They might have even done miraculous works, but they weren't part of his agenda. I mean, you're out there doing your own thing, and it might even look like what I'm doing. It might even look like my agenda. Like, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we do all these miracles? Like, hey, it might have looked exactly like my agenda, but it wasn't my agenda. 
Because the way that I know whether you're on my agenda or not, I'm not going to look at the end result, which is what a lot of Christians, when they read this verse, they're looking at. Like fruit, oh, that must mean that it's producing results. No, it means that you're bearing like the divine fruit of being a child of God and being in the vine. The only way you can get vine fruit is to be part of the vine. And what Christ is saying to us here is, you can't do anything unless you remain in me. Now, you're like, well, I could do a lot of things without you. Yeah, but they won't count. Because the things that count are the things that you do in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. We could spend days trying to tear this passage apart. There's so much wisdom in this, and Jesus is giving this to his disciples, but he's giving it to us. The real points come down to we must remain in Christ at all times. And without a prayer life, that's impossible. There may be other things that deal with how do I remain. Well, I'll tell you one thing is it's going to be very difficult for us to remain in Christ or be abiding in him or be a branch off of his vine if we don't even communicate with him. If we're not on his program. If the life-giving whatever it is that flows through trees for you botanists in here, whatever that is, doesn't come through him and into us in the language of prayer, it's all for nothing. It doesn't count. He's saying you can do nothing without me. And if we're what we say we're about, I don't want it to go, hey, this doesn't count. It also means that think of what we could do if we really started to abide in him. The people in this room and the people who met yesterday to plan out where we were going really believe in what we're doing and where we're taking it to the next step. But I'm concerned that we're not abiding. We're not remaining. We're just working. We're just doing. We're motoring. Here's just questions to kind of think about. Like, what will be the fruit of your life when Jesus says, did you bear fruit? What will be the fruit of your life? What will be the fruits of our ministry here together? Are we on God's agenda? Are we on His vine? Or is it just that we're a bunch of smart people who can just get here and talk on Sunday nights and come up with stuff that we've learned and critique and different things and create a bunch of CDs and hand them out and just think like, hey, we're doing a good job. Are we on God's agenda? It's going to be hard to know until we actually start asking Him and seeking him in prayer. How much of our ministry are we accomplishing without Jesus? And finally, what would be the impact of our ministry if we and this whole ministry were to abide in Christ? If we're at a two or a four, what would happen to us and the impact of what we do on Sunday nights if we took it to a six or an eight? Could we evaluate in a few years and go, prayer importance, 10. How's the group doing? 10. 
then the rapture would happen. <laughs> you know, it's over. Got one. I got one group. Ten out of ten. It's over. And you guys were all looking for signs, and that was it the whole time. <laughs> Wouldn't all those people doing the prophecy conventions be all bummed out if that was the answer? <laughs> so much time having the conventions, they forgot to do the ten out of ten prayer. All right. Questions to think about tonight. Let me uh, let me close in prayer, and then you guys doing anything else? All right, we'll do a couple of songs and get out of here and hang out. There's so much food here tonight that <laughs> let's let's pray and uh, offer offer this time to the Lord. Lord, I'm mindful that we are so short of the goal of first understanding the power of prayer, of having the faith to move mountains. Sometimes, Lord, I think it's because we doubt it and we begin by doubting it that we'll never even have the faith. So we've already kind of crossed ourselves out of the equation to begin with. But Lord, I know that you also honored the man who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so tonight we come to you in that spirit of prayer where we say, Lord, I believe that prayer works. I believe it is supernatural and it's a weapon that we have that can move mountains and that can cause the enemy to flee help lord our unbelief help the areas where we do not understand or do not even have faith to believe it's true let us begin with just the posture of believing and lord you give us holy spirit that supernatural belief to cure our unbelief lord i'm concerned that we do so much sometimes that we don't abide in you I want to see that kind of effectiveness. I want my life used for something that counts. I want to bear fruit that matters and not just fruit that looks like the real thing. I'd like it to be the real thing. And Lord, even though it sounds like such a simple thing to just spend more time speaking to you, the God of the universe, I mean, imagine that privilege. I still can never seem to find the time to do it, and I take it for granted every single day. And Lord, in a spirit of confession, we just sit before you and, and apologize. Confess openly that we are adulterous in our nature, that we prefer everything in this world to you, and that we spend no time with you. That we might tell others what a privilege it is to have a God like you, and yet we don't take advantage of one single moment of your time. And the fact that you love us so much that you would die for us, that you would shed tears for us, that you would suffer for us, Lord, and yet we can't seem to find the time to speak to you about it. So, Lord, tonight we believe, help our unbelief, whether it be through a discipline, whether it be through a realization of the importance of the power of prayer, whether it be just your Holy Spirit prompting us to become prayer people people who march into battle armed with prayer. I pray, Lord, that we would take seriously our command to pray constantly, intensively, with an other's focus, and that we would come back, Lord, understanding that it's a strategy you've given us so that we can pray against the devil's attacks. Thank you, Lord, for the people who gather here and spend time wrestling with your word. I pray that we may be better people for it, but keep us on your agenda. We want to abide in you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.